and welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast. I'm your host, Candace Hagans. And as always, you know, it's a pleasure and a privilege to talk Hawks with you. We are one week away from NFL action as I speak today. And there's been a lot of things happening, some ins and outs. But most importantly, we are nearing the official start of the football season and I am ready. I don't know about you guys, but we have talked. We have to talk about the 53-man roster cut down. We have to talk about, of course, we're going to touch on a little bit of Russell Wilson's extension. But most importantly, what I want to talk about today is 12 takes, 12 bold takes to go into this upcoming year for the Seahawks. There's a lot of naysayers, a lot of people who doubt the Seahawks. I'm optimistic, and I know some of the takes I'm going to do today are bold, but I want to get you guys excited for this NFL season. So let's get into it and talk some Hawks. All righty. So to start this thing off, I'm going to talk about a subject that isn't really directly related to the Seattle Seahawks, but I understand why a lot of Seahawks fans are invested in this, and that is the extension of former quarterback Russell Wilson. He officially agreed to a five-year, $245 million contract extension that will average out having him at $49 million a year. Now, I will say while that sounds like an astronomical number, I really don't think it was that astronomical. I think it's with probably around what his value is, at least relative to his you know, good performance. Um, and as we know, last year he was injured. But if you look at you know, the overall quarterback that he's been. He did not reset the market in any sort of way. Sure, he's in the line with the top paid quarterbacks, but I think that's naturally to be expected whenever you're up for a contract extension. And I won't go as far to say that it's team friendly, but I do find it interesting that he was willing to restructure his contract in a way that I, I think does in some ways benefits the team. If you look at the breakdown of his contract, his Cap hit for 2022 is $17 million. For 2023, it's $22 million. For 2024, it's $34.4 million. And then it goes up from there. I think it goes up to $55 million in 2025 and $58 million, $58.4 million in 2026, which he, he likely won't see the life of the contract for that anyway. Really, by the time he is 2025, there's some kind of, generally speaking, there's, well, I don't know, with his age, maybe there's not going to be a restructure, but few quarterback contracts see the full life of the contract. And maybe he'll be the exception, but it's my guess that the team is looking to do other things at that point. And really when you look at how big the cap is, how much the cap is going to go up, I really don't think this is an unreasonable contract. It's something I'd even think that John Snyder and Pete Carroll would have been amenable to had Russell been interested in an extension, which he was not. And that's one thing that he does not deny is that he was not interested in signing an extension with the Seattle Seahawks. So ultimately John Snyder moved on. It'll be interesting to see how this contract ages more than anything else. I think that's the only really intriguing storyline to me is does he age well? Is he able to be similar to the Tom Brady's? Uh, or is he more like a Philip Rivers who aged poorly or Ben Roethlisberger who who aged poorly? You know, his arm talent is still there. He's obviously lost a lot of his athleticism. 
Does that affect his game? Is he able to work around that? Is he able to sort of restructure his game as he gets older to still be an effective quarterback? Are all questions to look out for. But honestly, I kind of wish he would have taken, you know, something more team friendly like that on his last deal. I don't really know what goes into that. Maybe it's the fact that he's older now and he's just feeling the urgency to, you know, get get the Super Bowl ring that he's rightfully been like searching for for years that hasn't happened some of it's on him some will argue other others will argue not so much we'll see but this does put his team in a position I think to succeed or to build a team around him that can help him get there he did an interview talking about how that that was a priority he cared more about the Super Bowl rings and I don't think that was the case when he when he was in Seattle it would have, I mean, he cared about the Super Bowl rings, but he also wanted to get paid. I think he's gotten so much money at this point that that's not the priority. And like I said, wish Seattle would have been able to see some of the benefits of that. I wish he would have been able to see some of the benefits of what that would have looked like in Seattle. But I understand that John Snyder and Pete Carroll haven't been the best when it comes to personnel decisions. So I understand why that wasn't necessarily um, a risk he'd be willing to take. That's pretty much all I got on the Russell situation. He's not a Seahawk anymore. And while I understand the connection that will always be there, the, you know, the watching how Seattle does versus watching how Russell does with the Broncos will be a forever extending storyline. But it's just not something that I'm interested in spending too much time about. He's not on the team. I want to talk Seahawks. So let's talk about this 53-man roster. Your Seattle Seahawks officially made their cut down at the deadline on Tuesday. And I just want to give my overall thoughts. I'm not going to go through the whole roster. That's a little pointless. If you wanted to see my initial projections, you are more than welcome to check out our page at Ethos Seahawks on Twitter. And you will see my post. I had a spreadsheet of how I anticipated the roster would go. I got some things wrong. I got some things right as these things tend to go. Uh, Hardly ever does anybody fully guess the 53-man roster. But I just want to make a couple of notes. One thing that I think is glaringly obvious is how thin the roster is at linebacker. If you're not familiar right now, the only linebackers that they have on the active roster are Jordan Brooks, Cody Barden, and Nick Ballore, who we all know is just an emergency backup. He's not really a linebacker. He is just not at this age. He's more of a special teamer at this point, and that's really the value that he brings to the team. And they did not even pick up anybody on waivers, really. They they did get an edge rusher, but not an inside linebacker. So their inside linebacker dip, like I said, it's razor thin. To me, though, I think that just speaks to how little they plan on playing the linebacker position. And really, if you think about it, big picture, this is three, three, Seahawks 360, and we look at things from every angle. If you look at a big picture last year and the year before, when Ken Norton Jr. was the um, coordinator, defensive coordinator, that is, there was more emphasis on the linebackers. You know, K.J. Wright, Bobby Wagner were some of the best players on the defense all around at that point. And I just, I just think that philosophy has changed, where while Jordan Brooks is still a quality linebacker, 
I don't think that Cody Barton is, but Jordan Brooks is a reliable linebacker. Backer. The talent and the depth on this team is really in the secondary from the safety duo that they have to Josh Jones, who's come on in training camp, Ryan Neal, who we know is a reliable backup safety, and the cornerback depth. You know, Sidney Jones, how well he ended the year last year, Artie Burns being a good fit in this system at least. And then you've got two very talented rookies with high upside behind those guys, not to mention your second-year Trey Brown, who hasn't even had a chance to get on the field yet, but showed great promise in the few games he he played in in his rookie year. So I think it's really just a going towards the personnel and not forcing the issue. I don't think they intend to have more than one linebacker on the field. To me, that just says they're going to do a lot of three, four safety packages, a lot of big dime packages, nickel packages. They're not going to do a whole lot of, you know, two linebacker on the field situations. I don't think I, I think you will see Jordan Brooks on the field if there's a linebacker needed. But I, I think that it's not going to look like it did last year in that regard. And the logic behind doing that is because linebackers tend to struggle in coverage a lot of the times. And sometimes at that with the at least in the modern NFL, sometimes the best wide receivers in the game are slot corner or slot wide receivers. And so having a guy who's not a, good at coverage in the middle of the field like that could sometimes be an open exposure. The Seattle Seahawks had a lot of situations where you had good fast wide receivers end up on a linebacker and then it end up to it lead to an explosive play. And we all know when it comes on the defensive side, Pete Carroll does not want explosive plays given up. And that was a big way how teams were just, you know, set it up that way. It wasn't hard to get a lot to make sure you had a linebacker matched on one of your fast wide receivers for a big play. So you take one of those linebackers off the field, you replace it with the safety who will be better in coverage, and that decreases some of your liabilities and it gives you a little bit more versatility in terms of schematically. I think that's where they're going and I think that's why they're comfortable with the numbers they have. It would still make me feel better to have somebody better than Nick Belor under Cody Barton, but I think there must be counting on Jordan Brooks to be healthy for a good portion of the year to take majority of those snaps to relieve Jordan Brooks, Cody Barton. But I think more than anything, you're going to see a lot of Jamal Adams in the box. You're going to see maybe Ryan Neal in the box. And I think that's the, that, that'll be more common than anything else. So they're not worried about that. Okay, moving on. Notable cuts were Freddie Swain and Marquise Blair. Two people who I thought were on the edge of the roster anyway. And I was actually, I mean, you never want to see a guy lose their jobs. But I think that was the absolute right thing for the team to move on from those players. Freddie Swain hadn't shown much of anything in his time. He is really more of a guy who's benefited from busted coverages more than anything else. Freddie Swain hasn't made an impressive contested catch. Freddie Swain hasn't made an explosive play on his own. He's not a playmaker. That's not what he's shown. And I think you've got more of that in a Bo Milton or a Dariq Young. Bo Milton did not make the team either, but a Dariq Young with his size and playmaking ability, you've got a lot more of that than anything that Freddie Swain could have given you, especially if he's not even going to be reliable from a catch, from a pass catching perspective. I mean, a wide receiver who can't catch, what is that? 
Really, <laughs> what is that? And it wasn't just Freddie Swain, the whole team struggled, but you can understand it better when you're dealing with drops with a Derek Young or a Bo Melton who are rookies from lower, from smaller, you know, lower division schools and smaller schools. You understand it more. Freddie Swain had been in this league for three years and he progressed completely. I think he looked the worst he's ever looked. So rightfully, the Seahawks decided to move on. I think he signed to the Dolphins practice squad, which also just shows the level of player that he's at, you know, right now. Really more of a practice squad kind of guy. I would agree. Marquise Blair was also cut. Now, I thought they'd keep him around just because of his draft talent, but I didn't think he deserved to be on this roster at all. I did think that he wouldn't make it. Um, He just had so many missed tackles. And I just think they're frustrated with the mental mistakes with Marquise Blair. At some point, yes, somebody's talented, but they can't get the fundamentals down. How can you put them out on the field? How can you have the trust in them that they're going to do what they need to do? You know, you got to wrap up when you're tackling guys. And Marquise Blair just continues to make those same mistakes, headhunting when he's making tackles, not using his arms, not wrapping up these guys. And it's critical mistakes that are costly for the entire defense. So it was too much of that. He lost his job, especially given that he wasn't as versatile anymore. They pretty much took him out of the slot, uh, the you know, the nickel cornerback space. Um, he was no longer competing for that. So he didn't have a place on this roster. Joey Blunt, actually, <laughs> undrafted uh, Joey Blunt, beat him out. He played better. He made less mistakes. And, you know, competition wins. You want to see, at least I want to see, this team, come. they want to compete. Let the competition win. Let the best man win out. And I win, at, win it all out. And I think that's exactly what they chose to do right here. Now, speaking of competitions, I think it was clear that Miles Adams had completely beat out LJ Collier. And it wasn't close. Not just because LJ Collier had been injured for a good portion of the offseason, but just because it was like Collier hadn't produced anything in the NFL to his time yet. And so Miles Adams had basically more sex in the preseason than LJ Collier basically had in his whole NFL career. So it was interesting to me that they decided to keep LJ Collier, who just keeps lingering on this roster. I don't understand why they keep, you know, keep him on this roster. They did end up stashing him on injury reserve. My thinking is that they're hoping that, you know, by the time he gets healthy, maybe somebody else is banged up and they see what he's got, give him a shot in this new defense. But, man, sometimes you just got to let the dream die. I think they – I sometimes you just got to do that, and that's what I feel like they should do. I don't think they'll do it. Obviously, they did not do it. He's going to stick around. They keep finding reasons to keep him around. But this is it for him. I, I mean, he's not going to be on the team next year. They're not going to re-sign him to another contract. They better not re-sign him to another contract. So, it is what it is. I mean, he's not technically taking up a roster spot. So, I'm not going to trip over it. But I just find it interesting that they just can't get over this guy. I don't understand why they want to prove so bad that he wasn't a bust. Sometimes, like Marquise Blair, you just got to cut bait. But, whatever. I also, I, I did anticipate that they were going to keep... Derek Young over Bo Melton. I just think that it's about the measurables. The measurables of Derek Young, his size, his speed, you know, what he offers. 
the full package of playmaking. I just think that's more intriguing for other teams. And I think it just came down to who they thought they could sneak off the roster because both of them had drop issues. But And I think both of them, you know, saw, showed promise as well. They both had some plays that they made, and they both had some plays that they did not make. Like I said, Bo Melson, I just think, was easier to sneak on the practice squad. They were able to claim him back and get him back on the practice squad. So... I think that was a logic there. I think it was the right logic. It's exactly what I would have done myself. And finally, the other notable thing that I just want to mention is that Justin Coleman, there's a question mark there. Justin Coleman was originally cut from the 53-man roster, but they did bring him back, basically not to avoid paying his guaranteed salary. I find that interesting because when they cut him, I thought that maybe that meant that Kobe Bryant would be the starting nickel. And now, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if they're going to have him starting at nickel. If they brought back Justin Coleman, does he get that spot? Is it that Kobe truly won the competition, but they want the depth without the guaranteed contract? Or do they just feel like they didn't want to pay the guaranteed money, and so they felt comfortable going with Kobe, even though they prefer to start Coleman? That'll be interesting. I don't think we'll really know until game day or maybe unless somebody asks about it from the media but I don't think we'll know till game day what they're thinking right there I don't even know if they'll give that indication one way or the other but that's something that I'm interested to find out I was really excited to see Kobe Bryant you know in week one starting but I can understand why just even if it's nothing else but for week one they want some veterans there don't want Russ to take advantage of some of the young players and you know Kobe did not have a good showing in his final preseason game. So there's reason to believe that he's not quite ready, even though I was excited to see it. So those are pretty much all my thoughts on the 53-man roster, guys. It's not a ton to get into. It's really, you know, I think a lot of it was pretty straightforward. Of course, rosters are always fluid, ever-flowing. Things can change. People come and go. So we'll see um, what ends up happening. But that's all I got. So let's get started with what I know I've been waiting for. And that is my 12 bold takes for the 12s. Now, the way this is going to work, I'm going to throw out 12 bold takes slash predictions for how the Seahawks seasons will go. They'll be pretty random, just things that I found that I thought would be interesting that I also think could realistically happen, could be true. Do they have some boldness to them? Yes. Do they have some optimism to them? Yes. But that's the purpose of a bold take. What's a bold take if it's not going to be fun? And that's boring takes. We're doing some bold takes. Now, some might say they sound pretty reasonable to me. That's not that bold at all. But others might look at it and be like, Candace, you're crazy. Well, we'll just see how you guys fall. But let's get started. Bold take number one. Geno will start over 8.5 games. So the over-under, if you're familiar with betting, the way over-unders work, you basically have to pick over that number or under that number for 8.5 starts. I'm going to go that Geno starts over 8.5 starts. I think he starts nine games. That's my guess. Candace, nine games. I know you guys all want to, like, get mad, yell at me. Right, A lot of people do not want to see Geno for nine games. Some people don't even think he's going to start four games. And maybe that's true, but I say nine games because, listen, Pete Carroll is stubborn. That's my logic. 
Pete Carroll is stubborn, and I think he will stand by Geno at least to the midpoint of the season. And I think he can make a change after the bye week if he's going to make a change. But I now, if Drew Locke plays really well in practice and Geno's struggling, maybe that changes things. But I just think that Pete's going to try to make adjustments and do whatever he can, you know, not make any changes on on and I still don't think Geno will start the whole season. That's not happening. But I think it's more likely that they split the year than that Geno gets pulled after three or four games. Now I know that's not what you want to hear. That's not the fumble take that you guys get excited about. But you know, if you hate the idea of that, just think about it. College football started, and that just means a higher chance to get a CJ Stroud or a KJ Jefferson. Um, it is currently Saturday today, and these guys are lighting it up today. So just think about the, the quarterback prospects that we could be getting by starting Geno for more than nine games. Bold prediction number two. Ken Walker III gets over 1,000 yards from scrimmage and is a finalist for Offensive Rookie of the Year. I think this is reasonable, guys. Now, I know Ken Walker has a hernia issue right now, so he might miss some time, some, and I, but that doesn't affect my take. I think he'll still be very effective, particularly because, at least from what I saw in the preseason, they seem to really lean on him in the in the past game. Maybe not preseason, but just from the mic games and what I heard coming out of camp and those practices, they were utilizing the passing ability of Ken Walker third. And it was working. It was very effective. I think that's something that they'll lean on, that Geno will lean on, that even Drew Locke will lean on. Some of those check down opportunities will be emphasized. And so I think that's, you know, even when he comes back, because he'll be used in both the passing game and the running game, I feel he could still get 1,000 yards from scrimmage, especially in a 17-game season. So while that may sound bold, I don't think it's that bold. Well, Candace, how is he going to be a finalist for Offensive Rookie of the Year? Well, look at the quarterback class. It's, I don't think it's going to be that strong, and I don't think a ton of guys are going to get opportunities. I think the best guy who has opportunity is probably Kenny Pickett. Depending on when they play him, he's going to be a top candidate. But I think it's anybody's game. I think I, I think a non-quarterback could easily win Offensive Rookie of the Year. George Pickens could win Offensive Rookie of the Year. So... That's something that I, I think will happen. It's feasible. I'm not sure if he'll win it, especially given the time he's missed. I actually felt like he was going to win it before the injury or that he could realistically win it. But now, you know, I think he can be a finalist. I don't know if ultimately he'll be able to do enough to take it over the top and win that. But either way, I expect good things from Kenneth Walker the third. Bold take number three. The Seahawks will win over seven games. Cue the laughs. Yeah, I know. A lot of people don't take this serious. A lot of people don't think there's any way that we're winning seven games. But I'm going to break it down for you guys. Here's why I feel like the Seahawks can realistically win seven games. And I've already talked about this a couple of times before. But I just feel the need to reiterate it because there's so much negative energy. Negative energy comes from everywhere. Seahawks going to win two games, three games. Seahawks going to win more games than that. Seahawks, I think, are going to win seven. Here are winnable games. I still think they lose to the Broncos. Sorry, not sorry. Week two, lost one. they win against San Francisco. Week three, win against Atlanta. 
Week four, went against the Lions. Week six, went against the Cardinals without DeAndre Hopkins. That's a winnable game. Week eight, against the Giants. Week 14, against the Panthers. And week 18, against the Jets. Now, Seahawks would. So, not every one of these games are going to be easy games. But all of those games are winnable games. Even the conference, the divisional games. The San Francisco 49ers. Seahawks swept them last year. And they were a bad team. I think they can split this year. The Arizona Cardinals, to me, are overrated. I don't think that they're as good as people hype them to be. And I think they'll have a very inconsistent season as always. I think they have more question marks on their roster than we do in some spots. Except the quarterback. So since they got the quarterback, then people don't pay attention to that. But if you look from roster to roster, there's an argument in my opinion that can be made that the Seahawks have more talented roster. That may sound crazy, but go look at tight end. Go look at the, I mean, I think our tight end room is deeper. I think our running back room is better. I think the defensive line is, I mean, outside of J.J. Watt, who they got? Really a lot of questions on defense, more than anything. D-Hop is gone. How does that affect Kyler? Yes, he has Marquise Brown. Marquise Brown isn't, like, he's not a real, like, scary threat, is he? Are we, are the Seahawks fan base, are we really scared of Marquise Brown? I'm not. So, anyway, I'm going to just put it out there. That's a winnable game in my opinion. I don't think every one of these games will be easy. I don't think any of these games really will be easy. But the Seahawks, if they execute, if they're disciplined, if they stay on schedule, they'll be fine. And I think they can win all these games. That's my take. You could feel differently. But let me know in the comments if you're listening on YouTube, what you think it might be instead. And if you're tuning in via podcast, hit me up on Twitter at Ethos Seahawks. Let me know what you think. Now, Moving on to take number four. The Seahawks will have a top 12 defense. Now, (laughs) I kind of want to say top 10. I I got too scared. I got scared, y'all. I'm sorry. (laughs) I got scared. I didn't want to sound crazy because I do think this is a new defensive scheme. Clint Hurt is a brand new defensive coordinator. And I'm I'm just not sure about their ability to be a top 10 defense, but I think they can be top 12. That would be an incredible event, though, for the Seahawks. Here's how I think it can happen. Even though this is a new defensive system, they implemented the core and the concepts of this last year. Seahawks fans have already seen some returns and some dividends, and I don't think it'll look that dramatically different from the second half of last season, just to the naked eye. But I think they will be doing different things. The versatility, I think, will help. The fact that most teams don't really exactly know how to see how it's going to play this will help them, especially those early teams, you know, teams that aren't as strong in the beginning of the year that, that the Seahawks play. That will help them in terms of getting defensive numbers. I mean, they're not playing a, a tough slate of quarterbacks there but before the bye week. I mean, outside of Russell Wilson and – uh, am, I, am I missing anybody? Jameis Winston, I guess. I mean, they're not a. This is not a tough sledding when it comes to the quarterbacks. I mean, there's Kyler Murray, and Trey Lance is a question mark, but it's within reason that the Seahawks could not allow you know a ton of points, get better on not allowing so many yards, 
just implementing the things that they started on building on last year and being able to catch teams by surprise. Now, they'd have to continue that, but defenses tend to get better throughout the season anyway and they're tackling and everything else. And so once they face the harder teams, you know, the L.A. Rams, the explosive teams, the, the Raiders, teams like that, my hope is they'll be more disciplined, more foundationally sound, really in the throes of things, and able to, you know, keep those offenses from running rampant all over them to maintain their top 12 defensive status by the end of the year. Do I think it'll be easy? No, but it would be a huge, huge thing for the for the Seattle Seahawks. And really, I'm counting on it, honestly. I mean, if this if this team is in the least top 15 in defense, then there's no way that they're winning seven games. So a part of my whole you know prediction thing is predicated on defense being above average, that the scheme changes, that the personnel changes made ultimately make this defense significantly better and in the very least significantly more consistent not so up and down as it have been the past few years bold take number five charles cross and abraham lucas will both post a pff grade at the end of the season higher than 80 both of them will post a higher than 80 pff grade now, if that happens, that means the Seahawks have two superstars at tackle. Honestly, because that would be phenomenal for any rookie to have over 80. I mean, that's dang near Pro Bowl level right there. Um, if you got over 80 at PFF. Now, PFF does include penalties, so they'd have to do a great job of not allowing penalties, and that is yet to be seen. Now, realistically, I can see them but somewhere between the 75 to 78 range, but... Let's just go bold, man. Let's just go over 80. That's how I feel about it. I think they may get close to that. I'm not sure if they'll meet those marks exactly, but I am confident in what these tackles can do. The question is how much will penalties, penalties impact them, but these guys are blockers. Loving the pancakes I'm seeing from Abe Lucas. Loving the pass protection I'm seeing from Charles Cross and Abe Lucas. So just promising they'll face some really tough competition. So it'll be really interesting to see as we go through the division, you know, how that impacts them. You know, if they're able to, you know, find their footing in the middle of the game or do they just get railroaded? That'll end up being a a, a telling sign. But I'm excited about what these rookies can do. And I don't think it'll be the disaster that a lot of people think it will be. I think it'll have really challenging moments. And I think it'll look really bad for stretches, but I also think there'll be times when it looks amazing to make up for that. So that's take number five. Take number six. I think that Kobe Bryant, between the rookies, Kobe Bryant and Tariq Woolen, I think Kobe Bryant will have more starts and I think he'll have more interceptions. Now, that's probably not that bold given like his his standing in the nickel cornerback race but I don't know because depending on Artie Burns health you know maybe Tariq Woolen ends up starting more games than initially thought and I know some people do think Tariq Woolen will start games but I just get the sense that Kobe is more than the ball the ball hawk guy I think he's got more ball skills so while I think Woolen if he starts a decent amount will get some interceptions here and there. I'm not sure that that'll be a focus to his game. I think Woolen will be focused more on the fundamental things and, you know, more than making a play on the ball because that's what Pete Carroll cares about. You know, making sure that he doesn't get beat over the top, making sure that he sticks to his man, 
making sure that he's using the right techniques, depending on what the wide receiver is doing and playing off of that appropriately. All of that stuff, I think, will take priority over interception or interceptions, should I say. I just think Bryant's game is a little bit more polished and he'll have more wiggle room in addition to the to the fundamentals to make plays on the ball. All right. Bold take number seven. Jamal Adams will have at least seven sacks at the end of the year. Now, you didn't have any, if I'm not mistaken, last year. Y'all can grab me from wrong. I'm kind of going off memory here, but I'm pretty sure he did not have any sacks. Coming off of a year, or if he did, he had like two. Coming off of a year when he had like 9.5, broke the NFL record for the defense back with most sacks. Now, I don't think he'll ever get back to that because that was an abnormal, imbalanced, unhealthy approach that the Seahawks took in terms of how often they were blitzing Jamal Adams. You don't want to be dependent on that. They were trying to manufacture pressure. You want enough pressure from your front four or, well, your edges in this case um, to, to not have to depend on that so much. But I do think he'll be put in better position to be able to sacks, make sacks. I think he'll still be impactful. I think he'll have seven, especially when playing against some of those weaker teams like the Lions, Atlanta. I think Jamal Adams will feast. Um, so, Seven sacks is sort of my thinking, at least. I don't think he'll have any more than nine. I think that'd be skyrocketing. But realistically, seven, eight is what I'm thinking. That's what I expect from him, man. That, that's what he does. And people can make fun of him for it, but he's talented at it. And if you're talented at it and your skill is something that, that's a unique skill that you can bring to the team, man, embrace it. That's how I feel about it. Embrace that. And as I hope the Seahawks do that, this new scheme should allow for them to better position him. And I think it'll be a comeback year for Jamal Adams. I would love to see him add at least get one or two interceptions to make that a more consistent thing as well. But I know that's not his game. I'm not counting on it, given the the surgery he's had recently to fuse his fingers together, breaking it, breaking his fingers earlier in the offseason. I'm not counting on the interceptions. I love one, two at most. But if he can get one or two interceptions and have seven sacks, man, that'd be that'd be an incredible year for me. I'm, I'm sure he's going to rack up in the tackles. I'm sure he's going to be impactful just by being so versatile. All of that is the Jamal Adams package, and that should be enough to get him a Pro Bowl, to be honest. So that is bold take number seven. We are more than halfway through our bold takes. Hopefully you guys are enjoying this little segment here. And I appreciate it if you guys chew, chew, you know, chime in, give your feedback, give your thoughts. As we go, we are moving on to bold take number eight. And this one's pretty interesting. When it comes to the over or under on number of pro bowlers the Seattle Seahawks will have at the end of the year, over under 3.5, I am taking the over. Yes, the Seahawks will have over 3.5 players in the pro bowl. I think it might be four. So you already got three that you really hope off top. You hope DK, even though the Geno's in, in lock situation, you hope that he's able to still get his production and make a Pro Bowl. So you got DK Metcalf, hopefully. You got Quandre Diggs, hopefully, um, playing his normal, in my opinion, all-pro level self. Jamal Adams making a comeback. You know, that's three off top. So then you're thinking, who's the other person? Now, it'd be wonderful as Tyler Lockett. But I just don't think if DK is getting the production that he needs, that Tyler Lockett is also going to get a thousand yard or, you know, even close to be a thousand yard receiver. 
I mean, he, I think he might get close, but I just don't think it'll be enough for him to get a Pro Bowl, especially at the wide receiver position where it's pretty it's pretty packed in the conference. So I don't think it's, like, it's likely going to be Tyler Lockett. It's going to be one wide receiver or the other, and I prefer it be DK. But I think Jordan Brooks has a really great shot at being, you know, being a Pro Bowl this year. I think he's that talented. I think he'll be put in a position. Now the question is, if they're lightening up the, the the role of the linebacker, does that mean Jordan Brooks doesn't see the field as much altogether? Does that impact his snaps? Or does it just mean they're just going to go one linebacker and Jordan Brooks is still going to be able to rack up his stats by being on the field? They're just not going to need more, you know, a lot of dip because it's only one linebacker on the field. I'm going for the latter here. That's what I'm hoping in that case. So I'm thinking Jordan Brooks. Now, Daryl Taylor does have a shot to be a pro bowler. People were hoping he could be the pro bowl level. I have questions based off what I saw from him in the preseason. He played a pretty good amount, and I just didn't see him finishing those rushes. I mean, he was disruptive in the backfield, yes, but he just didn't have the numbers that I think he'd need to show in the preseason to show that he can really have an impact. Not to say he's going to have a fall-off year, I anticipate him having close, you know, eight or nine sacks. I think he'll improve from last year. I just don't think that it's going to be what people were hyping him up to be. I don't don't know if he's going to get the double digits. I'd love to see that. But I just, I have questions um, about if he's really going to be able to do it because he couldn't consistently get to the quarterback in the preseason. And that was against, you know, second, third stringers, backups. I don't know how that looks, you know, in – and against, you know, the first stringers, especially in a very, very tough in, uh, NFC West. So that's my bold take on that. I think the Seahawks can do it. It'll be interesting to see what happens. But the NFC is just not that, you know, packed of a conference, especially at certain positions. So I do think it's within reason that the Seahawks can have four pro, pro bowlers this year. Bold take number nine. The Seahawks will upset at least three teams. Now, this is bold. (laughs) This is bold. Uh, Most people don't think the Seahawks can upset anybody but themselves. So, I'm going out on a limb, but I'm counting two of them as division games. So, I think they can upset the 49ers. That will be an upset because the Seahawks will never be favored in those matchups. Well, not let me say never. Excuse me. Will not be favored this year at all in those matchups. And the Cardinals. I think those are two right off the bat. But I'm going to go out on a limb in my my swing. I talked about this before. I feel like it's possible that the Seahawks could beat the Saints. I am of pure minority in that thinking, and I understand it. The Saints have a good defense. But, you know, maybe I'm just not as high on Jameis Winston as other people are. I know he's got a great arm. Yeah. But he can also give the ball away. And and he's, he's shown progress at that. But I just, I still don't know what to think, especially coming off of that injury. I think it's possible. It's tough, but that's what I'm going to go with for my third upset. The Seahawks upset the Saints in week three. And besides, Pete Carroll is known to have, I, I expect him to have one extra game outside of the division that he beats an opponent that nobody really expected him to beat. That's just, you know, the whole compete mantra, his culture. That's what he's about, and that's what he thrives in, and he does well. I expect that to continue. So we're nearing the end here at our Bold Take segment. As we approach Bold Take number 10, I think that Derek Young will have more yards than D. Eskridge. It could be because of health. 
it could just be because of pure production. But I just really see the upside with Dariq Young. I think Dariq Young can play the same role as a DS Scritch. I mean, in college, he was that gadgety guy. And I think they can use Dariq Young for that in spells when Eskridge isn't available. And even though Dariq Young isn't maybe as fast as the Eskridge or is universally thought of as talented, I just think, I just get the sense he'll be more effective. I like the kid's learning curve. He just seemed to be, he seems to be progressing in a variety of ways. And I, you know, he played against some pretty low level competition in college. So maybe that's my lack of belief in Eskridge. Maybe it's my the extent of my belief in Young, but that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. I'd, I'd like to be wrong. Would really love to see Eskridge step up and, and really be the wide receiver three that everybody hopes he can be, but I just have my doubts, and I think Dariq Young could, could easily fill that void instead. Okay, take number 11. Noah Fant will get over 500 yards, which would be the most yards any tight end has gotten in a Seattle Seahawks uniform since Jimmy Graham left. And, you know, you may wonder, how is that possible? Geno's not going to throw that much. One, like I said, I anticipate Locke's going, Locke is going to get some run here. And Locke and Fant already have a good connection for those. I think I think they'll you'll see Fant's production increase even then. But even if you look in the preseason, you know, the the tight ends did get a pretty good run. They got, you know, Will Disley dropped the ball. Fant had that one that he that we all remember that that play where Fant could have kept his feet in, but he chose not to. Legino's targeted Fant a few times. Got a defensive PI trying to target uh Fant the last time. So, you know, I can just see them trying to go to him. And Fant seems to be pleased with his role. At least he's talked about it in interviews, that how the Seahawks plan to use him. So to me, that means it'll be more of an emphasis. I think that the whole tight end thing was really a result more of Russell Wilson than it was the scheme at any given point. And so with that said, I think we'll see some of the most production from Fant. Will he, I don't think he'll be able to outdo you know, Jimmy Graham or anything in terms of numbers that much just because you know, the quarterback matters. So it's not only going to be so many throws to go around. But I do, do think Noah Fant will find ways to be productive. More than anything, just because he seems to be a yards. I mean, he's a playmaker. He's a guy who can get the yards after catch. He doesn't need a ton of targets, I don't think, to be able to take advantage of teams. And early on, especially, I could see him getting going against maybe some of the weaker defenses, the Atlanta Falcons and things like that. See him really getting to a rhythm. All right, that was number 11, guys. My final take, final bold take, 12 takes for the 12s, is this. The Seahawks will not be last in the NFC West. What? The Seahawks won't be last? Yes, the Seahawks will not be last in the NFC West. I think it's the Cardinals, (laughs) y'all. I think it's the Cardinals. I am not high on the Cardinals at all, as you can tell. Now, yeah, I'm acknowledging it's a bold take, but think about it. Kyler Murray has been abysmal without DeAndre Hopkins. He will not have DeAndre Hopkins for the first six weeks. Another problem with Kyler Murray is that he tends to get hurt towards the end of seasons, which means he does not play nearly as effectively. And so his production drops down because of that. So just when he would get D-Hop back and probably get production back going, he might not even be healthy playing playing at 100% or even close to 100% 
and affect his production that way. I mean, when he doesn't have the ability to run, he is not the same dude. He's not the same threat to defend. And so teams do defend it, and his production takes a dip because of it. So I see reasons why his production will take a dip in the first half of the season and the second half of the season. And this team is predicated on Kyler Murray. Make no mistake. This roster, while they've done things to make moves, I I, I just don't see the elite level talent that's there. Like I said, a lot of question marks. And if the Seahawks end up winning seven games, that could easily tie for the for the last place. Uh, or it could easily at least put them in condition for. You know, I think the Cardinals may just fall off. You know, I, I, I could just see it. I mean, everybody thinks they're going to have this winning record, but and maybe they will, and it's a bold take. I'll admit it. But I could just see if the, if the Seahawks can win enough games, you know, take one from them in the division, maybe that flips that. Maybe it flips on his head. Seahawks end up in third place instead of fourth place. I'm not saying the Seahawks are going to be ahead of the 49ers or the Rams or anything. But I'm just putting it out there. I'm putting out this good energy into the universe and seeing what what pulls us back. So hopefully you guys enjoyed that. We'll come at the end of the year and we'll see what takes where Candace was right and where Candace was wrong. I understand a lot of these are both takes, but we're just having fun here. Talking some football. That is it, though, guys. That's all I have. I look forward to talking Hawks with you guys with official NFL football next week as we'll be previewing the Broncos versus Seahawks week one game that is much anticipated. We'll have a special guest on, um, so be on the lookout for that. In the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter at CandiceH901 and make sure to follow the show, as I've mentioned before, at Ethos Seahawks. That's it, guys. I'm out, and as always, go Hawks.